1976, uh, I went to see the Hal Lindsey movie, The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have ever seen that movie? In retrospect, it's a terrible movie. It's, uh, at the time, the current thinking on Bible prophecy was that it was going to be fulfilled by nuclear war and, you know, these kinds of things. But what the Lord did in my watching that movie is open my eyes to the fact that the Bible predicted future events with 100% accuracy. And um, it lifted... Uh, scales really off of my eyes, and I started onto a kind of a, a few-day funk is all I can call it, where I couldn't think of anything else other than Bible prophecy. Uh, and finally, um, this fellow that I worked with at the title company who had been a heathen with me uh, for a long time, we used to party together and stuff, he had gotten saved, and then he led me to faith in Jesus Christ. And so prophecy has always been really dear to me because uh, in my case, the Lord used it to draw me to Him. And uh, it, it's stunning to me that end times Bible prophecy is under attack. Uh, and it's not being attacked by skeptics and scoffers. It's being attacked by popular Christians. If you watch any kind of education or what they call educational television, Discovery Channel or History Channel or whatnot, um, a lot of the shows now are about ancient aliens and, and how they have visited us in the past and are coming back and all of this. And they all get into the Bible. They actually even use the Bible. They misuse the Bible by trying to show how Ezekiel talks about UFOs and different things like that. Meanwhile, the most popular Christians in America are getting away from any talk about prophecy. Now, it's an old book, but... Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life. It remains the best-selling hardcover nonfiction book in history, second most translated book after the Bible, a very significant book. Uh, at one point in the book, he says this, and I quote, if you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy. And then he goes on to characterize prophecy as what he calls a distraction and says that anyone who lets himself get involved in distractions like studying prophecy, quote, is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so uh, Rick Warren, in the most popular Christian book of our age, uh, doesn't want us to really get too involved in Bible prophecy. In his book, Speaking My Mind, Tony Campolo writes, rigid Christians who believe in the possibility of Jesus' soon return are a real problem for the whole world. And so he sees that as a, as a difficulty, that if, if you and I believe Jesus could come at any moment, that's somehow harming the world. And then Brian McLaren, who uh, some people still uh, follow, writing in Sojourners Magazine, April of 2009, it's a little bit dated, but he stated that any theology that stresses a special end-time role for Israel is terrible, deadly, distorted, biblically unfaithful, and morally and ethically harmful. And so, it's true, there, there is a, a concerted attack against the study of end times Bible prophecy. Calvary chapels used to be known for their emphasis on the unfulfilled end times prophecies, but sadly, even among our tribe, enthusiasm seems to be waning. I freely admit that some, even maybe many of those who emphasize prophecy, do it sensationally, making outrageous claims and 
predictions. A lot of the sites I visit to see what's happening prophetically, they really just have story after story about conservative politics. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, it's disappointing, the things that they try to draw into the end times prophecies. Um, and then there are those sites that are just making incredible predictions all the time about who the Antichrist is and about all of these different things. And obviously, people overreact to that. But I would say we criticize them, not the Bible. It isn't the fault of prophecy that people mishandle it. To ignore it is just as bad, obviously, and maybe even worse, I would say. I'm a member of a discussion group of pastors, many of them Calvaries, who think that our weekly series on prophecy is absurd. They, they, they can't understand what we have to say every week about Bible prophecy or why we'd want to have that emphasis. And so this is a real problem, I think, in the church today. I'm not really sensitive to any of that, but I thought it might be a good idea to just list some of the reasons why an emphasis on Bible prophecy is not only biblical, but immensely practical. And so this is a list. You'll find this list or a similar list on many different websites. I didn't invent it, but they're just, I'm going to give you five. There's probably more than this, but five reasons why the emphasis on Bible prophecy is immensely practical. Number one, as I tell you nearly every Sunday, fully 30% of the Bible consists of prophecy. Now, one source, people wonder what, what's our source, the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy by a guy named J. Barton Payne. He says there are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament, adding up to 1,817. Um, I, maybe there's a few more, maybe there's a few less, depending on what your criteria are. These prophecies are contained in 8,352 verses of the Bible, since there are 31,124 verses in the Bible, the verses that contain prophecy constitute actually 26.8% of the Bible's volume. So I'm rounding up to 30%, but it's 26.8% of, uh, of the Bible uh, by, by just sheer numbers deals with prophecy. Dr. Hugh Ross says, and I quote, Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, about 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled to the letter with no errors. The remaining 500 or so reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as the days go by. And so 500 end times prophecies remain unfulfilled. Prophecy isn't confined to a few prophetic books. It permeates the entire Bible. For example, the Apostle Paul spent... We think about three weeks establishing a church in the city of Thessalonica. Um, there's some debate about how, exactly how long he was there, but he mentions that he was there for three Sabbaths, and so he was there maybe the better portion of 21 days before he got run out of town. Um, since he was with them so briefly, you'd think he'd have a lot of practical instruction that he'd want to impart in any letters he wrote to them, things like church government and liturgy and interpersonal relationships and things like that. And so so you, you would, he's only there for a few weeks, doesn't have time to establish much, and now when he's writing, he, he's obviously going to write about things that are super important, which modern authors would tell us have to do with, you know, practical matters of church government and various things like that. But in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, every chapter references the return of Jesus Christ. Now, 
when he wrote the letter, it didn't have chapter breaks. We've put them in. But from our point of view, every chapter references the return of Jesus Christ. And even if you ignore the chapter breaks, once in every 13 verses in that letter, Paul is talking about end times prophecy. And so this was something very, very dear to him, very much on his heart. Uh, he felt like it was his pastoral duty to bring it to the attention of the people and um, that it was super serious. Chapter 4, of course, of 1 Thessalonians, that's Paul's clearest teaching on the resurrection and the rapture of the church, where the believers are concerned because some of their members are dying, and they believe that they had missed the rapture somehow. And so Paul had already taught them about the rapture, but now he filled in their information about that by explaining that the resurrection will precede the rapture in an infinitesimally small amount of time. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be transformed into our glorious bodies and be caught up to be with the Lord. And so all of that is in that amazing letter to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians has a long section on the day of the Lord, the tribulation, and the coming of the Antichrist and what it is that restrains him now and those kinds of things. The Apostle Peter wrote extensively in his letters about the end times. He was super concerned that he get the word out. The last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is fully prophetic. It promises a blessing just for reading it. Every time I remember this or read this, I wonder why we don't read Revelation every day. Because it says in the third verse of the first chapter, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. And so the Lord says that you will get a special blessing for reading or hearing the words of this prophecy and that the time is drawing to a close. And so obviously we want to be reading it. Uh, and the book ends with Jesus promising he's coming. Revelation twenty two twelve. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so those who want to push aside prophecy can only do so by ignoring huge sections of Scripture in just about every book of the Bible. I would say just teach through the Bible, and you will hit prophecy one in every 13 verses or one in every 20 verses or 30% of the time. And so if you, you know, if, if, rather than even fight about it, just forget the fight and just say, hey, instead, we're going to emphasize anything but the word itself. Let's just teach through the Bible verse by verse, and those people who uh, shun prophecy will find themselves having to deal with it and having to teach it because it's everywhere permeating the word. Second, Jesus is the subject of Bible prophecy. When the apostle John fell down before an angel... In the book of the Revelation, he said, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and one of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so that angel was letting us know that if you want to know Jesus in a deep and meaningful way, you're going to have to embrace Bible prophecy. In Luke 24, verse 44, we read, then Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
And so the Lord was able to look back at the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and say, everything that was written there was prophetic about me. On the road to Emmaus, one of our favorite passages, uh, Jesus hides himself from the two disciples. They don't recognize him, and he starts questioning them. And then at one point, he gives them a Bible study. It says, starting at the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end of what they had, he points out all the places where the Scripture speaks of him. And obviously, it was speaking of him prophetically, looking forward to the future. And so the Lord is the subject of Bible prophecy. In Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus said of himself, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So you can make an argument that if you want to know Jesus more, and who doesn't, you're going to have to see him in prophecy, and not just fulfilling past prophecies, but in how he will fill future prophecies. So if if I were to ask you, do you want to know Jesus more, you would say, of course I do. Well, one of the ways you can do that and must do that is to look for him on all the pages of the Scripture in a prophetic way, both past fulfilled prophecies and future unfulfilled ones. You can even argue that unless you read and reread the Revelation regularly, you won't know Jesus very well. I say that because the word revelation in the book's title, as you know, is the word apocalypse, which means an unveiling or a revealing. It's the book where Jesus is revealed or unveiled. Get it? It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know Jesus, and you want to see, then you'd want to see him revealed, would you not? And that's the book where you see him fully revealed as he is now, as he is in heaven, as he is in his second coming, and as he will be in the future. And so extremely important that we read and study it. Number three, fulfilled prophecies are a powerful testimony to the truth and the accuracy of the Bible. Let me read this to you. It's rather long, but it's a pretty good quote. Just uh, here it goes. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be born of the seed of Abraham, Jesse, and David. He'd be born a virgin, called Emmanuel, born in Bethlehem. Great persons would come to adore him. There would be the killing of children in Bethlehem. He'd be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. He'd be a prophet like Moses, a priest after the order of now Melchizedek. He would be entering into his public ministry in Galilee. He would be entering publicly into Jerusalem and come into the temple. He would live in poverty and meekness, tenderness and compassion. He would be without deceit. He'd be full of zeal, preaching with parables, working miracles, bearing reproach. He'd be rejected by his own Jewish brethren. The Jews and the Gentiles would combine together against him. He'd be betrayed by a friend. His disciples would forsake him. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that price would be given for a potter's field. He would die with intense suffering, yet be silent under that suffering. He'd be struck on the cheek. His visage would be marred. He'd be spit upon and scarred. His hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross. He'd be forsaken by God. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He'd be numbered among transgressors. He would intercede for his murderers. He would die, but not a bone of his body would be broken. He would be pierced long before crucifixion would even be invented. He would be buried with the rich. His flesh would not see corruption. He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. 
All of this was recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever entered the world. And many of these prophecies are fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who stand to lose the most with their fulfillment. And many of these prophecies being fulfilled before he was born, while he's in his mother's womb, and while he is in the grave. And so people argue about the dates of certain Bible books and you know, there's a big debate as to whether Daniel wrote Daniel and things like that, and I, I understand that. We know that many of these prophecies, if not all of the ones that I went through briefly, predate the historical person of Jesus Christ, yet he fulfills all of them. The odds are beyond calculation. And so when people want some kind of proof, they ask for a miracle or, you know, those kinds of things, fulfilled prophecy is an absolute miracle proof that the Bible is the Word of God. There's no other book like it. There's no other prophet like it. Some of these famous mystics and seers, they're happy if they get a 5% accuracy on their predictions. And some of their predictions are all over the map. A great person will be killed this year. Okay. That's my prediction, by the way, so... That's, I'm probably going to be at least 5% true, and, and yet the Bible is 100% accurate, and not only in general, but in specific, and not only specific, but more specific. Many of these prophecies build on themselves and get deeper and deeper and deeper into a very specific individual or time, and so fulfilled prophecy, tremendous witnessing tool and apologetic for the truth of the Word of God. Number four, prophecy encourages holy living as a servant of the Lord. I've been quoting Romans 13, 11 on Sundays where Paul says, do this knowing the time. Now it is high time to wake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And so Paul is telling us uh, to be aware that we're living in the end times and, and we don't have time to be spiritually sleeping or, or, or tired because the coming of the Lord is nearer than when we first believed. If, you know, if we believe that the Lord could come at any moment and he didn't come 20 years ago, then obviously it's nearer now than it was then. And so uh, we keep that emphasis. After a long section on the future, the Apostle Peter asks in his letter, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And so Peter, in the middle of talking about prophecy and the second coming of Jesus and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, he says, thinking about that, what kind of people ought you to be right now? How does this impact your Christian walk right now? And obviously, it does so in a very powerful way. John says in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We shall know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so John is saying when Jesus comes, if you're alive for the rapture, let's say, um, and you're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, you're going to see him as he sees you in perfect holiness. And thinking about that, John says, should purify yourself 
In other words, it should further your, what we call sanctification, your growth in the Lord. Thinking that you could see Jesus at any moment should excite you to holy living. And it's not that you're afraid he will come suddenly and catch you doing what is wrong. I mean, there's, there's probably a place for warnings like that. And you've, if, if you've been to churches any length of time, you know that there's always explicit or implicit warnings. Do you want to be in that movie when the Lord comes back? Do you want to be in that bar when the Lord comes back? You'll be ashamed of yourself. And that obviously can be true. But it's more that Jesus is the returning bridegroom, and we're the bride, and we want to be ready for him. We want to be as beautiful as possible. I know it's hard for you guys to think about being a bride. I hope it is anyway. Uh, but uh, anyway, you, you, you get the idea. You, you at least probably dressed up for your wedding, maybe, I hope, if, if you got married. Um, but, uh, and so that's the idea, that you're going to see this person that you love and who loves you. You want to be ready for that person. You want to you be your best because of your love, not because of any kind of fear. And so Bible prophecy, the uh, emphasis on, obviously the emphasis on it reminds us that the Lord could come at any moment, and He is coming, and it, it keeps us in a place of, of really wanting to be ready for him. And number five, Bible prophecy presents hope, the only hope for the future. There is no hope for the future of the human race or the earth apart from the Bible. People are fascinated with but also afraid of the future. Dystopian apocalyptic stories are more popular than ever. Whether by nuclear strike or a super virus or alien invasion, there's a general feeling of doomsday out in the world. Brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking died at age 76 about a week or so ago, 10 days, whenever it was. He had a list of several ways the future could do, uh, would go, and they're all doom and gloom. Hawking theorized that humans would turn the planet into a giant ball of fire by the year 2600 due to overcrowding and energy consumption, which will make Earth uninhabitable. So it may sound like a long time, but we only have about 520 years, 80 years left before we destroy the planet ourselves. And that's uh, optimistic. He also claimed that the advent of artificial intelligence could be the worst event in the history of our civilization. He believed eventually AI will outpace our own intelligence and turn on us. This is a quote, I fear that artificial intelligence may replace humans altogether. If people design computer viruses, someone will design AI that replicates itself. So what he's saying is all these science fiction movies where the robots turn on people and take over the planet, they're tr he said that's what's really going to happen and because our artificial intelligence is going to realize that they're smarter than we are and they're going to go their own direction. Speaking to the BBC as part of his 75th birthday celebration, he said, I fear evolution has inbuilt greed and aggression to the human genome. There's no sign of conflict lessening. The development of militarized technology and weapons of mass destruction could make that disastrous. The best hope for the survival of a human race might be independent colonies in space. And so that was another of his predictions that the military industrial complex was going to destroy us and so we better start colonizing space. One more, he said that if we don't find another planet to live on in the next hundred years, climate change, overpopulation, pandemics, and our wars will get to us in the end. 
And so that, that is one of the most brilliant minds ever, certainly a brilliant mind of our era, saying this is the future, this is the best possible future, is that you would colonize the moon and hang out there and see what happens from there. Do you realize that the Bible doesn't reveal the end of the world as such, but the beginning of the redeeming of the world so that righteousness can reign forever and ever? Our future is hopeful and the only hope. Remember, the, the revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ. Sure, it's filled with disasters, catastrophes, heavenly bodies falling out of the heavens and, you know, hitting the earth and massive amounts of death and destruction. But when we went through the revelation, we pointed out that it was the grace of God's wrath. God says, turn to me. This is your last chance. You now have seven years, and then it's all over. There's no second chance. And as we go through the, the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and the uh, various things that happen in Revelation, there's also the preaching of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many hundreds of thousands and millions who come to Christ during that time. It isn't the end of the world. It is the beginning of the world as it ought to be with Jesus coming back and fully taking control of this planet and then ultimately making a new heaven and a new earth. That is the hope of the Bible. And so when people say, well, the Bible predicts the end of the world, yeah, and this world needs to end. And if, and if it doesn't end, if he doesn't end it, the way the Bible says, it's going to end badly. It's going to end be, as a beginning of something new and wonderful. Why would we quit emphasizing our future hope, especially to a generation of people who are empty of hope for the future? Stephen Hawking had no hope for the future. He, most people don't have any hope for the future if they really think about it. And so they, we watch these shows and we go to these movies and we think, maybe we'll pull it out in the end. Maybe the Avengers will be strong enough to turn back the invasion, I don't know. And, and hopefully we can turn it around. When God says, no, there, there's hope. I'm coming. I'm going to establish a kingdom and then a forever kingdom in the universe. There's an often quoted verse that describes people, it says they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. It's 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles rather, 12, 32. They had understanding of the times to know what to do. These are most obviously the end times. Understanding that, it is appropriate to emphasize Bible prophecy because the beginning is near. Amen?